just fantastic to be with you this evening and to worship together with you, just sensing God's presence here in such a powerful way, ministering to us. What a privilege it is to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, so often we make out as though we're doing God a favor by serving Him. And the privilege is just ours, to be children of the living God, to be called by God, to be invited by Him, to be a part of His plan for this world. And uh, it's just a joy to be with you. Thank you to the leaders of the church for giving me the opportunity of sharing this evening. I thought I would start just by giving a little bit of our testimony, what we're doing, and then share something short from God's Word with you this evening. When I was 18 years old, I actually went over to Australia to do my Bible school training. I trained at uh, the AOG College in Australia, and it was the very first mission service we had at our Bible school where I felt God challenging me to go to India. And uh, I kept that in my heart, and the call to go to India got stronger and stronger, and I looked at trying to pursue getting to India, and the door was completely closed. As a matter of fact, at that point of time, there's actually a little sign at the port of entry in Mumbai, no dogs, no South Africans. Uh, they were intent on not having any relationship with South Africa. South Africa had offended India greatly uh, by the way they had treated Mahatma Gandhi when he was here in South Africa. And so they wanted nothing to do with South Africans. I went back to South, came back to South Africa, started getting involved with Africa School of Missions, but always with a, a passion to go to India. And there were many times we looked and tried to see if God was opening the door for us to go to India, and uh, we tried at different times, and the door just seemed to be closed again and again. So we continued serving at ASM, and over the period of uh, uh, 24 years that we were there, it was just such a joy to be able to see God sending people into 54 nations across the world, um, going to serve Jesus and to make His name great in those nations. And then it came a time around about 2006 that I said to my wife, you know, we've taught missions, and we've always taught you don't send teenage children to the mission field. So we got to put this on hold. Our daughters were teenagers, and we decided, okay, we're going to wait till they finish school. We're going to wait until uh, they've done their education, and then we'll go to India and serve God there. And a year later, God had different plans for us, and uh, we felt God say just very clearly that our time at Africa School of Missions was over. I didn't know what the next step was. We, we had sort of decided we weren't going to India, and so we started seeking God and looking at different options. And as a family, we spoke about possibly uh, going to the USA and settling there because we had family there, and then we were going to move and do missions into India. And uh, you can imagine two teenage daughters hearing that. They really believed their parents had heard from God. You know, they were living the American dream already. And uh, it wasn't uh, too long after that that we really felt God say, it's time to go to India. And uh, we grappled with it quite a bit. And uh, then we, we just knew we had to make the decision. It was quite difficult telling our two teenage girls, it's no longer America, it's now India. And, uh, and uh, their response was not too, too great. Uh, and we made a, we made a, a, a very uh, interesting decision. We decided, we felt the Lord had told us that we need to get our children involved in the decision to go and serve God in India. 
And so I said to him, we're going we're gonna to take a step of faith. We're going to trust God. It was uh, in 2000, October 2007. So we're going to trust God that we can go over to India as a family. We're going to visit there. And at the end of the trip, if anybody doesn't want to go and serve God in India, then none of us are going. And with great fear and trepidation, we left for India, um, trusting God all along the way. And India is one of those places you can try and prepare things however you like. They're not going to turn out as planned. And uh, we, I try to make it the trip of a lifetime. I assure you, it didn't turn out as planned. And we got back and uh, we sat down as a family and both our daughters said, we, we, we'll go and serve God in India with you, Mom and Dad. And uh, that was just wonderful. And so we made the family decision. I've got to tell you, that was six months before we went. They changed their minds many times in the next six months. They said, no, we're not sure anymore. And I said, well, the decision's made. We're going. And so in 2008, we, we left for India. Uh, I, I, I hadn't uh, taken note of it, but the, the, the night we arrived in India, it was the eighth of the eighth of the eighth. Um, and eight is that number of God's grace. And, you know, it's, a, it's just been God's grace as we've seen him, as we've been serving him there over the past 10 years to see his favor in our family life. When we left for, for India, I had family who had been involved in missions for years and years, and they were very, very angry with us. They told me I was an irresponsible father. What did I think taking two teenage daughters to the mission field? That just six months before we went, we also adopted a little boy, and uh, they were not very happy with us at all. But on about six occasions, people who knew nothing about what was happening in our lives just came and said, we feel that God is saying to you, your call to India is not just for you, it's for your family as well. And so we left, went to India. And our first weekend in India was just bliss. It was wonderful. We arrived. We were in a church of 7,000 people. Um, we were preaching four times on the Sunday morning. It was just an amazing, uh, great day of celebration. And then on Monday, we left to go to the town where God had called us. And the little vehicle that came to fetch us, well, it wasn't too little, it was rather big, had Bethel Old Age Home written all over it. And quite a unique little vehicle as we all clumbered in with our luggage and our, everything we, we had with us. And uh, you could, you had a 360 degree view. You could look out the windows and see the view outside. You could look down below and see the road. And you could look up and see the sky. Uh, the vehicle was uh, rather old and decrepit. And they said, it's only 80 kilometers. And I thought, okay, South African mind, let's calculate just less than an hour. Um, well, four and a half hours later, we reached Uti. And uh, uh, Uti is a town up in the mountains, 7,500 feet above sea level. And uh, you think of India as very hot. We got out there, it was cold and it was raining. And uh, we got into a little place that uh, I had looked at before. And um, I suppose it's a good thing that wives don't always trust their, home, their husbands with accommodation. My wife didn't have the opportunity. I thought it was a great little place. And um, we, we got into the place, and I was trying to keep the family spirits high. And I said, isn't this lovely? And my daughter said, no, Dad, it's not lovely. And it was a pretty rough little place, a tiny little kitchen. I could stand in the kitchen, and if I did this, I could touch all four walls. And 
The only difference was I had a finger full of mold after I had done that and uh, got to the kitchen. There was beautiful gas plate there, but no gas bottle and uh, no kettle, no iron, no fridge, nothing in the kitchen. It was cold. I remember that first night making a fire. Uh, and I'm not a great fire maker either, but I, I went and did the thing and made the fire. And the kids asked for some tea. I went and got a pot, and uh, we had a bit of uh, water that they brought us, wrapped a towel around my hand, and I was sitting there putting this pot over the fire and making the tea. And on my knees, I just said, God, was I having a midlife crisis? Who in their right mind would bring their family to a place like this? And I thought, you know, I'm a South African. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. It's going to be a beautiful day. And it's just going to be fantastic. Well, the sun didn't come up for three months. We were in the middle <laughs> of monsoon. And uh, it was raining and it never stopped raining. I mean, we would try and do our washing uh, in, in the little bathroom and then hang it up. And uh, you'd hang it inside. And five days later, it was still soaking wet, but it just stank. It was, you know, it was just putrid. And, and then someone said to us, no, 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 don't worry. Um, you, there, there's a dry cleaner in town. Also, just don't believe names in India. Uh, a dry cleaner is not what you think it is. Um, and we knew that after we started sending our clothes because the only way they could dry them was in front of a fire. And so we just smelt a fire all the time uh, as we walked around in these clothes. And it was challenging. Those first three months were challenging. For, you know, it, uh, uh, the, the drainage in our town was really non-existent. Uh, there's animals all over, goats, cows, horses, and you can just use your imagination what's happening with the, uh, the monsoon and all the rain and everything else. And uh, you're walking that, and it smelt, and it was, and it was difficult. We, we had to get used to going to the market, and you know, I'd, I'd never bought anything but a chicken out of uh, pick and pay. And now they would hold the cackling chicken up in front of me and prepare it in front of me. And you'd walk home with a warm bird in your hands. And I tell you, it's not that great eating that bird as you walk with this bird in newspaper home. And you go and prepare it for dinner. And then we, all these different challenges. And I remember one day, our girls, you know, you can look at any movie of India. And it's wonderful. It gives you a great picture. One thing it can't do is it can't tell you about the smells of India. The smells or something else. They, uh, they're rather overwhelming at times. And we're walking in town one day, and our girls always would try and hold their breath um, over a little river in our town, well, a little stream, really, more than anything else, because uh, there was a massive rubbish dump that went right into the stream, and everything else pumped into the stream as well. And uh, then the stream and another big mess of rubbish dump. And they would try and hold their breasts from the one side to the other. And on one occasion, I was just a little bit irritated with them. I saw them doing this. And I looked at people washing their clothes in the river. And I said, you know, you should just be grateful that your clothes aren't washed in this river. And it was only about a week later, we weren't getting clothes back from the dry cleaner quick enough. And so my wife went to look for Kamalo dry cleaners, and it was a little tin shack on the side of the road, and uh, he knew her straight away and said, Madam, I've got some of your clothes. Uh, he said, look, I do apologize. I couldn't do the whites this week. The river's just a little bit too dirty at the moment. And I can assure you we didn't tell our children where their clothes were being washed. We just walked around. <laughs> Those first three months were just the most challenging months 
that we had. And one day, some other missionaries in our town came up to us and they said, oh, isn't it wonderful that God has called us to this beautiful town? And, you know, it's one of those times you realize the best thing is just not to answer. So I smiled. I didn't shake my head. I did nothing. I just smiled at them. And when they left, I looked at Karen and I said, what on earth can they see that I can't see? This is the dirtiest, smelliest, filthiest place we've ever been in our lives. And about three months after that, we were walking in town one day. And I looked at Karen and I said, isn't this place beautiful? It's just so great that we're serving God. And then we started laughing because we remembered the conversation we had had with the missionaries three months before. And I can assure you, Uti had not changed. But God had changed our hearts. And, you know, that's all that God really wants to do. So often we are praying that God will change our circumstances. We're praying that he'll take us out of a certain situation. And he's saying, I want to change your hearts. Because when God changes our hearts, we see everything so differently. And, you know, a lot of our prayers are related to, to God making life comfortable for us. And I've got to tell you that God's not as interested in your comfort as you think he might be. Because when you're comfortable, there's not much God can do with you. See, God's more interested in our characters. And to work with our characters, he's got to make things a little bit uncomfortable for us. So he can make us the men and women of God that he wants us to be. Now I can say to you now that the past 10 years of serving God in India, they've been the most challenging years of our lives but they have been the most amazing years. They've been the best years of our lives, and we would not trade it for a thing. And we're trusting God that on the 8th of August, we're going to be on a plane back to India to serve God there for another season. We've seen God's faithfulness again and again. Our oldest daughter, the three years that she finished her studies in India, I don't think there was a day that her stomach was ever settled. She went into hospital. She had jarred here, I don't know how many times. She had typhoid. Uh, she got all these different sicknesses. And we, you know, you, you think, what, are you, what am I doing to my child? And, and you know, we look back now and, and we just rejoice because next month on the 16th of August, her and her husband and our grandchild, they're leaving to serve God in the Middle East. And they're going to be working as uh, Nigel and Lindsay are. They're going to be working with Syrian refugees. Let me just say, thank you, God. Our second daughter, who was also really ill in India a lot of the time, she's serving God now. Her and her husband are serving the Lord in the UK. He's a youth minister. We just give thanks. You know, when we're faithful to God, He takes care of all the other details. And we serve an amazing God. Our ministry in India, um, we're involved in uh, three main areas of ministry. And in India, you just get involved with a lot of stuff. Um, so it's, it's difficult really to capture what, we, what we're doing because we're involved with children's ministry. We're involved in a whole lot of different things. But primarily, I went there to do training. And so it is such a privilege to be working with young leaders in India and see their passion for God, see their passion to reach that nation for Jesus, and equipping them and sending them out. And so there's 15 different locations that I'm teaching in the nation of India, and uh, we're sending out workers and seeing those young people enthusiastically going into places I could never go into. 
and planting churches and doing something amazing for God, making the name of Jesus great in the nation of India. I want to tell you when you go to India, you see vividly and graphically, graphically what John 10 says. The thief has come to rob, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You see it on every street corner. You see it wherever you go. But the verse doesn't end there. It says, but Jesus has come that we might have life and life in all its fullness. And where the gospel of Jesus is going and lives are being changed, people are finding life and life in all its fullness. So it's a wonderful privilege to be training leaders in India. Another part of our ministry is actually ministry to missionaries. Each year, hundreds of missionaries return from the field and they never go back because they're burnt out. Some of them actually lose their faith because they've just been totally burnt out on the field. And so God really put it on our hearts to be ministering to missionaries as well. And in our town, there is an international school. Um, 85% of the children that go to that school are missionary children. Their parents are serving. It's a boarding school, and so their parents are serving all over Asia, from Mongolia, China, all the way to the Middle East. And they send their kids to this school. It's a, it's a great school. But the missionaries are passing through at least two or three times a year. And so we have an amazing opportunity to minister to these missionaries. Each year we probably have about 200 missionaries come through our home. We're able to share with them. We're able to pray with them. We're able to encourage them, give them a good meal. <clears throat> and uh, particularly over this past year, we've just seen God really ministering to a number of burnt out people's lives and just give them strength and grace to serve God for another season. I want to encourage you, for the missionaries you know, pray for those missionaries. They're living in challenging, challenging places. And sometimes the stresses are incredible. And they do an amazing work. And so we thank God that we're involved with that as well. And then we got involved with the local church when we first arrived in India, and I was invited onto the the, the board of the church, and over the first two years that we were there, they were going through a transition and looking for a pastor, and a few times, few times they asked me if I would pastor the church, and uh, I adamantly said, if there's one thing I won't do, it's pastor a church, so don't ask me, and uh, after another year, they asked again and again, and finally they said, look, will you just come help us for six months? We're going through a difficult patch, and so I agreed seven years ago, that I would help them for six months. And seven years later, I'm still helping them. For <laughs> but it's just an amazing privilege serving God at that church. Part of the reason we're serving God there is that after the first six months of working there, uh, we, have, we have many of the, the, the kids, the young people from the school, the international school, coming to our church. And so we get about 300, 350 on a Sunday morning. 200 of those are young people and, uh, and just zealous for God. And after being there six months, a number of the parents said, you know, it's, it's, it's a real blessing to us on the field knowing that our children are being looked after spiritually. Not that we were doing any amazing job or anything, but they just felt their children wanted to come to church and they were being looked after. And, and then we realized, well, that's actually part of our ministry to missionaries. 
And uh, in that way, we can serve missionaries by, by serving their children. And so we've continued in that capacity and uh, seeing God do some amazing things. We've already seen young people in the church being mentored, going and doing their training, and now serving God in missions themselves. And that's been a very exciting thing, just seeing God raising up those young people. To me, on a Sunday morning, there's nothing better. I stand up to speak, and there are 200 young people there, and a whole lot of them will take out their notepads and start writing notes as I begin to share God's Word. Just incredible to see their desire and their passion uh, to serve the Lord. Every year, we have about 30 baptisms in our church, and uh, we have a number, uh, we have a, a, a good percentage of our church from the local community, and wonderful seeing people coming to Jesus. About 18 months ago, I had a young man come up to me after a service. He said, you spoke about somebody called Jesus. Um, I said, yes. And we began a conversation, and the conversation went on for a year. And a year later, we baptized him into faith in Jesus. He was a young Muslim man, and uh, God, uh, God touched his life. And, uh, and it's just been so exciting to see him growing in faith. He brought his sister to church some months ago, full burqa and everything. He brought her to sit in the front row of the church there, and, and she sat there as he worshipped the Lord. And then another time, he had a friend that he brought to church, and we were serving communion pretty much like this up in the, in the front. And I saw him come to the front with this guy I'd never been into church before, and uh, he started explaining the communion to him and explain, uh, well, I, I was so choked up. I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do a thing as I saw this young man just sharing his faith. Just wonderful to see what God is doing. About four months ago, we had a, a, a man um, coming to the church. He had immigrated to the U.S., um, made a lot of money, but had been absolutely miserable in the U.S. And so he had just retired, and he said to his family, I'm going back to India to connect with the gods. I've never been happy, and maybe if I connect with the gods, I'll be happy. And he's got no shortage of gods to connect with in India. There's 330 million that you can connect with uh, in India. Just about anything you can think of, you can worship as a god. And uh, he came, and one Sunday morning, just came into our church. And he was warmly welcomed by the people. And uh, two months ago, uh, after a Sunday morning service, I just shared the, the message. Uh, I invited people to come up for prayer. And Hashmuk came to the front and invited Christ Jesus into his life. And uh, serving God with all his heart. And so I just counted a privilege to to be a part of what God is doing in the nation of India. Things are getting tough in India, and uh, we need your prayers. I can particularly ask you for prayer for our visa. Uh, we're awaiting our visa. Five years ago when we got our visa, it was a big miracle. And to this day, when people, um, when I tell them I've got a visa to be the minister of a church, they don't believe it. They want to see the stamp in the passport. Well, that was under a, a secular government five years ago, and now I'm applying for the same visa under a government that is extremely anti-Christian. Um, our prime minister came in. He represents a Hindu party. His whole objective is to restore India to a Hindu nation. He has made it very clear that he wants to reconvert Christians and Muslims, and he wants to reconvert them all to Hinduism. Um, in some of the places in North India, he has already paid people to reconvert. 
His first thing he did, Moody, when he came in as prime minister, was go to the River Ganges. Uh, the River Ganges is a place you can only believe when you see it. Uh, there's sewerage pumped in it. There's dead bodies thrown into it. There's garbage thrown into it. And yet everybody goes to the shores of the Ganges to drink of its sacred waters. And he went and he drank of the sacred waters and made Varanasi a project, his personal project. It's the holy city of India, and he wants to restore India to Hinduism. And so over the last uh, three years, we've, we've seen a lot of changes. Open Doors Ministry does a list of persecuted countries. When Modi came into power, India was number 37. Last year, it was number 17. This year, India's number 11, just behind Iran. And so persecution is increasing in the nation. Two years ago, they kicked 300 missionaries out from the north, of India. Some of you might know of the uh, international ministry, Compassion. they a large ministry. They had massive offices all over India. The whole organization was kicked out of the country. Um, our our, we're in the south of India. It's a lot more moderate in the south. You don't get the persecution you get up in the north in places like Bihar, Bihar and Orissa. But even in our area, there's been um, burning of churches. There's been vandalizing of churches, beating up of Christians. One of our outreaches, just 40 minutes away from our church, they're meeting on a Sunday morning. They, um, we have a group that's linked with the government called the RSS. They're rather a militant group. They came in, they stopped the Sunday service. They said, this property doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us. And uh, at the moment, there's a court case going on. We have all the papers for the church, but they are claiming that that belongs to them. Two months ago, 14 churches were closed down in our town. Um, all the pastors were gathered, and we were told no meetings in homes at all. Uh, you may not have prayer meetings. You may not have Bible studies in homes. Uh, when that was challenged, they said it's got nothing to do with Christianity. It's just the Public Disturbance Act. And uh, I can assure you the Christians aren't making a lot of uh, disturbance in the community. Um, our towns are now full of rituals going on all the time. Um, we're having rituals come in. They hold rituals, Hindu rituals and festivals outside our church, sometimes for a half an hour, loud um, rituals, prayers, as they do their different mantras there. But we know that in the midst of the darkness, God is also at work. And so, although things are getting tough, we know that when the church is persecuted, when it goes, when there's pressure on the church, the church arises. And so we thank God that he is at work in the nation of India, and we're trusting God to continue to work. We're not trusting God to take the persecution away, but we're trusting him to make the church strong in the midst of persecution so that the church can grow and be what Jesus called it to be. I want to share with you, and I know my time is almost up, so just let me uh, share a few words with you uh, this evening. I want to uh, look at one of the great judges of the Bible. When you think of any of the great judges of the Bible, who do you think of? Samson, Gideon, Deborah, you know, there's, there's some amazing ones, but I'm sure on the top of all of your list would be the judge Shamgar. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, you, all of you just, uh, just revel in Shamgar because he's just such an amazing, mighty judge. Well, actually, there's, there's only one verse in the Bible that speaks about Shamgar, 
and uh, it's in uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 31. It says, after Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anoth, rescued Israel, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat. And that's all that it says. There's another reference somewhere in Samuel, which refers to the time of Shamgar and how treacherous it was. But I love this little story about Shamgar. It's an unknown judge. Nobody knows much about him, but God uses him in an amazing way. And you know, the exciting thing for us as Christians is that God, he's redeemed us, He saved us, He sanctified us, he's done this amazing work in our lives. He says, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things have passed away. Everything's, old things passed away. Everything's new. He's done all this for us. And then in addition to that, he says, hey, I want you to partner with me in my great work that I have here on this earth and in the nations of the world. And he says, come, work with me. You know, Christianity is not just about sitting in church and being a spectator. But God wants us to be participators in what he's doing. He wants us to be part of his plan for the nations of the world. And so many of us sit and we think, well, what can I do? You know, how can I be effective? And that's why I love Shamgar. Because here you got this man. And there are just three principles that I want to speak about in the life of Shamgar. And I will be very brief as I do that. You know, I look at Shamgar, and the first thing I see is he started where he was at. Simple. He was living in the most treacherous times in Israel. The Bible tells us in Samuel, in the days of Shamgar, you couldn't even walk on the roads that were so dangerous. You were at threat in your homes because the Philistines were coming and they were stealing things out of your homes and they were taking possession of your homes. It was rough. It was tough. And Shemgar had every reason when God called him to say, God, not the right time. Let's wait for better circumstances. You know, let's wait until things come right and then I'll serve you. And yet God says to each one of us, start where you're at. Don't wait for a better day. You know, I love the verse in Esther, chapter 4, verse 14, where Mordecai says to Esther when she's reluctant to go before the king. He says, you know, if you don't go before the king, God's still going to save Israel. There's no doubt about that. You and your father's household are going to die. And then he says, but who knows that God hasn't raised you up for just such a time as this. And I want to tell you, church, God has raised each one of us up of us up for such a time as this. We're not here by mistake. We're not supposed to be in another country. We're not supposed to be in a, you're supposed to be where you are and God wants to use you exactly where you are. You're not there by mistake. You're in the right workplace. You're in the right neighborhood and God can use you. He simply wants us to start where we are. And that's what Chamgar did. In the midst of the most challenging circumstances, he said, I'll start where I am. And then the second thing that he said is, I'm going to use what I got. Simple. I'm going to use what I got. What did he have? He had an ox goat. Sure, nobody here knows what an ox goat is. Well, it's a, 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 a piece of wood that's about that thick and five to ten feet long. It had a prod at the end of it, and as the, cat, the cattle were plowing the fields, the, the, the farmer would prod the cattle along with a sharp end, and on the other end, there was a blade, and they cleaned the plow with that blade. That's what an ox goad was. And that's all Shamgar had. And you know, it would have been very easy to say, God, 
haven't got the right stuff, you know. I need a few swords, a few spears, and a few shields. And then I can do something for you. But he used what he had. And I want to tell you, God has already given you everything you need to accomplish his purposes. You don't need anything more. So often we're sitting there saying, but, but God, I need A, B, C, D. And God's saying, go and do it. Just go out there. God, I, I first got to get training. And, I, and I, I think training's excellent. But go out there, get your training, and work for God at the same time. Just start where you are. Use what you've got. With an ox goat, he goes and he slays 600 Philistines. He had nothing else. The Bible tells us that at the, in his time, the Philistines had made sure there were no blacksmiths in Israel. Because they said if there was a sword, a shield, or a spear around, the Israelites would arise and they would attack the Philistines. So there are no blacksmiths. They, the Bible clearly says no sword, shield, or spear was around. You could have said, well, God, let's start working on a strategy. You know, get, let's get some blacksmiths back into action. Then we'll wait for a few thousand uh, swords to be produced. He used what he had. And if you look in Scripture, God, God does the most amazing things with people who have very little. Remember the Israelite army shouting and screaming in fear, shivering in fear, while Goliath shouted out his mouth and was shouting curses to the God of Israel? David comes along and says, what's happening here? And he takes five stones and a slingshot, and he walks up to Goliath. And Goliath actually says, he said, do you think I'm a dog that you would send him? And David says to Goliath, you come to me with sword, shield, and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And you know what happened to Goliath? One stone and one slingshot. That's all he had. The widow, Elijah, bit of flour, bit of oil. I can't feed you. What you got? Jesus, how many meals when produced again and again and again? And so all God is asking us to do, start where we are. Use what we've got. And the last thing God says to us is, do what you can. Because another thing we always say is, God, I can't do much. You know, there's not much I can do. I haven't got the talents. I haven't got the abilities. And God says, do what you can. I'm not asking you to do something you can't do. Do what you can. And when we do what I can, we can, God does the rest. I heard some amazing stories just two months ago about missionaries whose lives were impacted and touched through people in the church who just did small little small gestures. They prayed for them. Someone who hugged them. Someone who smiled at them. A Sunday school teacher who sent a card every year to one of his students for 20 years before the man made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And the reason he's on the field today is because of that Sunday school teacher. He wrote a card. Every one of you can write a card. Every one of you can pray. And I tell you, the greatest thing we need on the mission field is praying people. And there's not one of you who can't pray. That's the greatest power we have in the church. And so my challenge to you this evening is by God's grace, you'll start where you are. You do what you can, and you'll use what you've got. May the Lord raise us up as an army of his children to do great exploits for him. And the Bible says, may we do great works, and may people see those works and glorify our Father in heaven.
That's who we want to get all the honor, glory, and praise. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his kingdom. It's about his glory. And it's about men and women finding life and peace in Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you.